part of our Saturday morning ritual at our house, uh, whether we're running errands uh, or uh, doing chores. Uh, almost always on Saturday morning, we turn on National Public Radio to listen to car talk. Some of you listen to car talk, so you know why we listen so faithfully. And then after car talk, we listen to wait, wait, don't tell me. And then uh, in the evening, we often on Saturdays, if we have time, we're driving around or at our home, we uh, turn the radio on and listen to at least a few minutes of a Prairie Home Companion, also on NPR. So our radio dial is set so that sometimes in the afternoon, if I turn the radio on, I hear what's happening on NPR, and there's a show in the afternoon on that I hear occasionally, just every now and then, and it's called The Splendid Table, and it's hosted by a woman by the name of Lynn Rosetto Casper. Uh, the Splendid Table is a cooking show. I have almost no interest uh, in it. When I turn the radio on, and, and there it is, it's not very exciting to me. Um, uh, if we had a television, I would never voluntarily watch the Food Network, which is surprising because given certain epic proportionality, you would think that I would enjoy listening to the food show. Uh, the Splendid Table is, they say this, the radio show for people who love to eat. Um, and, and as I overhear what's happening on the show, I, I listen to some unusual recipes. And frankly, there's very few things on the show that, that sound very appetizing to me. Uh, one of the weekly segments is a, is a call-in segment where people call in and they have some ingredient in their house and they're looking for a recipe to do something with. They have something in their house that they want to cook uh, and they need help in figuring out how to prepare it. Uh, it's never normal ingredients. No one ever calls, calls in and says, I've got a pound of hamburger and I'm not sure what to do with it. No one does that. It's like um, people call in, Lynn, I have company coming, and the only thing in my refrigerator is half a gallon of sheep's milk and yellow pepper. What should I do? Or um, we had a wonderful dinner last night, but I have all these chicken brains left over, and I don't know what to do with them. What should I do? How should I cook them? What I'm really waiting for is somebody from Lancaster County to call. <laughs> Lynn, I've got an 8 by 8 by 8 chunk of scrapple, and I'm not sure what I should do with it. Or even better, this is, I'm really waiting for someone to call him and say, I have half a container of cup cheese. What do you think I should do with this cup cheese? I know exactly what to do with cup cheese. I'll just say that. Um, now, this, what happens, they, they mention these ingredients, and then Lynn Rosetto Casper goes into this. She gives, This is like a... a Take that sheep's milk and put it in a saucepan and throw fresh raspberries, two teaspoons of cocoa powder, a grated carrot, blue cheese, and fresh garlic. Bring it to a boil and then pour it into a freshly baked pie crust and it will be just delicious. And I, I hear that and I think to myself, that does not sound delicious. All of those things together. <laughs> but what I'm really waiting for her sometime to say is, all right, the first thing you need is some cocktail weenies and a can of cheese Whiz. I think that would bring a whole new market to her listenership. Uh, now, no one ever complains about the suggestions. I, I, I always, they always say, oh, that just sounds so good, so wonderful. That's what they're saying on the phone. I think at their house they're like, throw that away. We're ordering pizza. Okay, get a... None of the food sounds appetizing to me at all that I ever hear on this show. And then, then it occurred to me. Lynn Rosetto Casper knows a whole lot more about food than I do. And she knows a lot more about, about flavors. And 
what if, what if my criticism of her actually says more about me than it does about her show? It reminds me a little bit of, of a, a story Alistair Begg, I heard him recently say, he, he was talking about the, this art museum. They opened, as, as I recall, a, a new exposition showing some impressionist masters. There was paintings by Monet and Degas and Cezanne and Renoir, and uh, they were in this huge display in this art museum. And in the first couple weeks of this new show, a man came and, and watched and looked at the paintings. And he walked around very carefully and examined each one and went, went from painting to painting. And, and as he was leaving, he, he uh, uh, was muttering, and a, a security guard overheard him. One of the museum guides heard him. He, he said, uh, well, it's not that impressive. And the security guard stopped and said, excuse me, sir, what, you, you have an opinion about the show? He's like, well, these paintings are okay, I guess, but I don't know. They don't, they don't speak to me. And the museum guide said, sir, uh, these paintings are old and they have been evaluated and critiqued over and over and over again. In fact, these paintings are at the point where it is no longer the paintings that are being judged. The viewers are being judged. Um, I tell you that story because we're, we're studying a passage of scripture that's meant to introduce you to the various flavors uh, the, the spectrum of color of holiness. And at first your natural reaction might be like mine to the splendid table. Oh, but, but this presentation is meant to call you in. It's meant to invite you to conform to the pattern of holiness that is manifested by God himself. Um, what if there are things about God that you do not know? And if you knew them, they would draw you in, not drive you away. It is the Bible that it is not the Bible that it's being that is being judged. It's the readers. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 12, Leviticus, chapter 12. You'll find Leviticus, of course, in the beginning of your Bible. Uh, It's the third book of the Bible. And I want to direct your attention to Leviticus, chapter 12. Leviticus 12 is a, is a passage of scripture, a book in the Bible with a very consistent message. And I've said it before and I will say it over again, I suppose, in the next few weeks. God is holy and you are not. That's the theme through the book of Leviticus. And I'm using that word holy over and over and over again. It's a foreign word. It's a word, again, we don't use as a compliment for people. Uh, if someone says to you, wow, you're really holy, think about what they're saying, because that might, they might not be using it as a compliment. Holy people are what? Self-righteous. They're remote. They're impractical. They're alien from the cold realities of life. Within a couple of hundred years of uh, the writing of the New Testament, within three or four hundred years of uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, uh, there were people who were convinced that in order to be holy, you had to escape from life. So they'd go live in monasteries, or some of them um, even uh, lived on the top of towers. And this would be a great sign of their holiness that they were up at this tower for 47 years and never came down. They were really holy. Uh, but that's not the way that the Bible uses the word holy. In the Bible, the word holy describes God's uniqueness. He is set apart. He is in a category all by himself. And as you read the Bible, you, he's unique. He's in a category all by himself in his goodness, in his power, in his love, in his justice. 
He knows what is right. He loves what is right. He's committed to what is right. And he has the power to do what is right. Uh, In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to learn a new song. Actually, it's an old set of lyrics with a new melody. It's from a hymn uh, that was written in 1676 or so called, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. It's a testimony song. It's a song about how we respond to God's rightness, the fact that what God does is right. Listen to some some lyrics here. Whate'er my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. He holds me that I shall not fall. Here's the second verse. Whate'er my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path, I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. His hand can turn my griefs away. Uh, The song continues, and we'll learn it, as I said, in a couple of weeks. But this is an affirmation. God is holy. He is uniquely right. Now, we've seen since we started the beginning of the book of Leviticus how Leviticus teaches us this. One of the ways that it does is by the sacrificial system. When you offered sacrifices, this was an affirmation of of the fact that God is holy and we are not. How do unholy people live in the presence of holy God? Only by the blood. Only by the death of a substitute can unholy people live in the presence of holy God. Now, last week, we started looking carefully at at these laws in Leviticus 11 through 15, these particular pieces of legislation that are called the purity codes. They're lifestyle laws that are intended, I think, to, to tell the Israelites about the various flavors of holiness. You sometimes have the experience of, of walking into your house and, and dinner is, is getting ready. It's being prepared. And, and you walk in and you, you smell it. And sometimes it's, it's uh, pasta sauce. Sometimes it's, it's uh, Italian sauce. Oh, it smells so good. And, and sometimes maybe it's, it's the, sound, uh, the, the, the sound, the scent of, of a roast that, that's cooking in the oven and you, you smell it. Leviticus 11 through 15 is meant to, to clue you into the various scents and flavors of holiness. And, and it does so in a way that is strange to us, foreign to us. Leviticus here divides the world into categories. It divides the world into things that are holy and common and things that are clean and unclean. Now, being holy or common refers to your status. If you're a holy person or a holy object, that means you are uniquely God's, for God's purposes, to be used by God. Uh, in a sense, the whole nation of Israel was a holy nation. This morning we read in Sunday school from Exodus 19 about the nation of Israel is a holy nation. They were set apart for God's purposes. But even among that nation, there were priests who were set apart as holy priests. And then there's clean and unclean. And clean and unclean refers, of course, to your condition. Not whether you're spotless or not, not your hygiene, but your ritual purity, your ritual condition. That's a foreign concept to us. Um, Maybe there's an illustration that, that might help you with this. Maybe not. Um, you probably know that when, when a sports team wins a national championship, they are often invited to the White House and to meet the president for a photo shoot. Well, in 2005, the women's lacrosse team from Northwestern University 
was photographed when the president, with the president, and when the picture was released, there was a, a mild furor in the press. Some of the young women had worn flip-flops to the White House. It was called the flip-flop flap. Um, it is not appropriate to wear flip-flops in the White House. Now, flip-flops are not immoral footwear. It's not a sin to wear flip-flops. They just don't belong in the White House because they don't match the formality of a meeting with the President of the United States. Now, the lifestyle rules that are given here in these chapters are given because of what they say about living in the presence of a, of a holy God. We talked about food rules last week. There's, there's nothing inherently immoral about eating pork but by doing so, by this nation, in this time, with the relationship they had with God, it was inappropriate. It communicated something untrue about God, eating pork did, in this setting. We talked about last week these flavors of holiness. That, that to be holy means to be whole. That is, that is, your whole life is to match your commitment to holiness. Uh, biblically, holy people uh, are ho- pursuing holy because uh, uh, holiness for the sake of joy. And, and holiness often involves this separation. I wonder if it, if it puzzled you. We talk about food a lot. Food. Why, why is there this obsession with food here? Do you remember, though, it was the first sin, the first sin ever committed? Food was at the center of it. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, you can eat anything except this. And you know, that dietary restriction was there for, for their joy too. Did you ever wonder about this? Did you ever wonder why did God put that tree in the garden if he didn't want Adam and Eve to eat it? If he knew what the consequence, and he did, what the consequences would be for them eating from that tree, why did he put that tree in the garden in the first place? Huh. I don't say to my children, um, here, everybody, here's the Ginsu knives. I'm going to leave them out on your dresser. Don't touch them. I don't do that. I hide the knives away. Why did he put the tree there and say, don't eat it? He did it for their joy. He did it so that they would have every day a reminder of how good it is to choose to obey God in contrast to disobey him. Disobeying him. They walk by that tree and every day they say, there's a tree, it looks good, but God said not to. And look, he made this garden for me to live in. And, and, and he, I can eat all this fruit, everything from these plants. And, and I walk with him in the cool of the day. Why would I choose that fruit instead of him? There, there's a certain joy that comes in saying no to things that uh, uh, God forbids. He put that tree there to give them that, that opportunity. Now, today before us here is, is a brief chapter, and it contains a set of lifestyle rules that, frankly, they're not difficult to understand. We understand the, the what of these rules. The why, though, of these, these laws is a bit puzzling. Um, I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 12. It's eight verses, and you're, it's going to raise questions in your mind, and I'm going to talk about those questions in just a minute. But let's read Leviticus chapter 12. We'll start in verse uh, 1. All right? This is what God's word says. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, 
A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Now, what kind of questions comes to your mind, come to your mind when you read this passage? I have a, a couple of them. Uh, three come to mind. Two of them maybe came to yours. One I've been wrestling with. The first one is, why does giving birth make you unclean? Uh, Certainly, God is not opposed to babies, and there's nothing in the Old Testament that suggests that God is opposed to babies. And there's, there's no indication in the Old Testament that people said no to babies because of this uncleanness. But why would giving birth make you unclean? Now, the second question I have is, um, why does the birth of a daughter make you unclean for a longer period of time than a birth of a son? What kind of sexism is this in the Bible? Here's a third question. It's been haunting me all week. Why would someone choose to preach through this book knowing he would have to talk about these things from the pulpit? <laughs> things like post-delivery bleeding. Normal people don't even talk about these things at home. Just wait. It's going to get worse. We haven't got to chapter 15 yet. Leave your mother at home. You don't want to sit next to her during that sermon. What I want to do here is, is I want to spend a moment or two uh, clarifying this piece of legislation. I want to talk about what's going on here, and then I want to think with you about what this passage teaches about God and His holiness. So first, um, uh, what is this law talking about? And then we'll talk about what it means, or what flavor of holiness is uncovered in this, this passage. Now, these laws, in particular in chapter 12, are very clearly related to, the, to God's presence among the people. That's been a theme of Leviticus. God is moving physically in with the people, so some of these laws have to do with God's physical presence, and that's very true in this case. In fact, I want to show that to you. Look with me over at Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31. Look over here um, at... at Leviticus 15 is a, is a passage that talks about um, cleanness and uncleanness during menstruation. And look how he ends the passage in verse 31 of chapter 15. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. So, so this bleeding issue is related clearly to God's presence of God's physical presence 
Uh, birth and the after effects of birth are very physical things and they're related to God's physical presence among the people. And one of these, the reasons that these laws are not now abolished, the reason these laws, why you can come to church without regard for these stipulations, is because God is not physically pre- present among us, but he is spiritually present among us. So our concern is for spiritual purity because God is spiritually present. Now, there's two different periods of uncleanness in chapter 12, aren't there? There's the first lasts for seven or 14 days immediately after this birth. And, and during this period of time, a woman was unclean and she was contagiously unclean. Just like during her monthly period, um, anyone who touches her uh, becomes unclean. The furniture she touches becomes unclean. Uh, this is normal uncleanness. And after that initial period of 7 or 14 days, uh, she is unclean in herself, but not contagiously so. Now, what, what about the difference between sons and daughters? Why is a mother unclean after giving birth to a boy for 40 days, but unclean after giving birth to a daughter for 80 days? Here's the truth of the matter. Nobody living except God really knows. Um, I've read several theories. I've read some good answers. I've read some bad answers. Some people have tried to prove, there's been medical tests of this, that post-birth bleeding after the birth of a girl is worse than post-birth bleeding after the birth of a boy. Um, That's been debunked medically. Uh, Some people suggest that maybe because the daughter herself will likely someday have post-birth bleeding, that this doubled time is compensation for that. There's two women involved in this, so the time is doubled. That doesn't seem very likely either. One of the things that I know is true about this passage is that he's not trying, the Lord here, through Moses, is not making a statement about the value of women versus the value of men. Uh, do, do you know that, that touching a a, a pig makes you more unclean than touching the carcass of a human being. That does not mean that pigs are more valuable than, than humans. Is, that relationship doesn't carry through. And, and the sacrifice for both of them is the same. So it doesn't have anything to do with the value of sons versus the value of daughters. Here's one theory that might help you. Um, Maybe, I think that maybe the length of uncleanness for daughters is the normal length of uncleanness. This is what the normal length, but the length of uncleanness for sons is shorter because of the circumcision. Uh, It mentions this in in verse 3. A a boy has to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if if his mom was still unclean, she would not be able to go to the temple to uh, witness uh, this circumcision, or she wouldn't be able to carry her son to the circumcision because he'd be unclean by touching her. So she has to be clean on day eight so that the son can be circumcised. And since it's a circumcision, it's not just the time that's being cut short. Uh, now, notice what happened. I did just make a circumcision joke, and I'll move on right after that, okay? Just going to keep moving. Okay, now, notice what is supposed to happen here after this period of uncleanness. This is important here. The new mother and the the father are supposed to present sacrifices. Actually, it's the mother who does. A burnt offering and a sin offering. That's what happens at the end of the the period of time. 
Uh, now, when we first started talking about sin offerings, one of the things I said was, don't think sin as in guilt sin always. Think you should said, instead think purification offering. There is no hint, hint in this passage at all that a woman is guilty for having given birth. She's not going to the, to the temple to seek forgiveness. Again, this is a ritual purity issue, and she's bringing a purification offering. Um, the, the, again, a purification for, for, if it were a sin, actually, if, this, if she needed forgiveness, the sin offering would have to be first and then the burnt offering. But the order indicates this, she's not guilty here. Um, a few minutes ago, uh, Lauren read a passage from Luke chapter 2 that describes Mary and Joseph. It's an odd, it's, it's not anywhere near Christmas, why are we reading this passage? Because that's the story of Mary and Joseph fulfilling this vow, fulfilling this part of the law. They took Jesus uh, after 40 days to the temple in Jerusalem so that Mary could offer these sacrifices. And I wonder if you notice, if you were paying very close attention, Mary and Joseph offered the sacrifices of the poor. There's provision here made for rich people, uh, not rich people, um, provision made for everybody, bring a lamb and a young pigeon or a dove. Or if you're, if you're poor, you can't afford a lamb, then bring two doves. And that's what Mary did. Uh, when, when the Apostle Paul wrote about uh, a giving, he reminded his readers in, in Corinthians that the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. And he's not just talking in that passage about Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to become a human being. He, he's speaking literally, the Lord Jesus, who was rich in glory, became poor, a poor human being. He, he lived in a position of, of powerlessness where he'd be familiar with need and with want and the potential to be victimized. What happens if you're a poor carpenter in a town and, and someone who's wealthy won't pay you for work that you've done? What, what recourse do you have? There's implications, I think, in that for how we think about our money and what it means for us really to be like the Lord Jesus. I wonder how, how did he face the temptations that are involved with encountering need. Those are some of the issues that are involved in this law. A more important question that I want to move on to, though, from clarifying this law, is I want to think about what does this passage teach us about God and holiness? What are the new flavors of holiness that this passage teaches us about? And I want to suggest two of them to you this morning. First, I want you to see that holiness helps you distinguish between temporary and eternal happiness. Holiness helps you distinguish between temporary and eternal happiness. This passage puts a separation between two wonderful sources of blessing. Two great sources of blessing. The very physical, earthly experience of birth and the spiritual experience of communion with God. Giving birth and its consequences interrupt your ability to participate in worship. The physical joy and blessing is separated from the privilege and joy of worshiping God. There is this separation put between the two of them. Um, this is, is a persistent message that's all the way through the Bible. Marriage and childbirth are, are great blessings from God. 
But they belong in a different category than the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. These are only temporary, and thus they themselves don't define what eternal happiness is. As good as they are, they're merely temporary. This is one of the ways that the Judeo-Christian vision of marriage and family differs from other religions. If you were one of the original audiences, if you were an Israelite picking up this legislation for the first time, you would be surrounded by other nations that did not have this view of the relationship between birth and spirituality or birth and communion with the gods. The Hittites, who were not that far away from uh, the Israelites here, believed that when a woman gave birth, that was the time in her life when she was most susceptible to demons. That's why she couldn't go to worship. Or they worshiped fertility gods and they believed that giving birth was, was oh, in some instances, just like the, the, the female creator deity who gave birth to the earth. Uh, there's, they were intimately involved, the gods and, and this physical process, but that is not what's taught in the scripture. They are separated joys. Uh, Think about some of the religions that are in existence today and how they put these joys together. Islam. I know there are a variety of Islamic teachers and uh, a variety of Islamic views, but uh, what do we we understand? We hear this all the time. If you die as a martyr in service to Allah, what is promised to you? Perpetual sexual pleasure. Or uh, Leviticus is describing a God who is different than the one proclaimed by Mormonism where your eternal status and identity is bound up in your ability to produce spiritual children and to be a, a, a wonderful father or wonderful mother for eternity. This passage teaches us to separate and recognize the difference between temporal and, and eternal happiness. Marriage and, and children is one of God's greatest blessings, and the Bible celebrates it over and over and over again. Children are a blessing from God, but it's not ultimate blessing. Someday, marriage and children are going to pass from existence, and followers of Jesus Christ will still be eternally happy. Because there's a difference between temporary and eternal happiness. Some of you need to hear this in particular because you have a hard time imagining how there, that anybody could be happy without marriage. Or how can anybody be happy without having children? You, you know that because you don't have a, a husband, you don't have a wife, you don't have children, and you're miserable about it. The Bible's not cold or callous at all towards those longings as they go unfulfilled. It talks about the loneliness of singleness or the pain that breaks the heart of a couple that cannot bear children. But I want to remind you this morning gently, if if I can, that as, as good as those blessings are, they are temporary blessings. They're not part of God's eternal plan for happiness. They're not the sum total of what it means to be satisfied. See, the, 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 the loneliness and the pangs of sorrow that you have may last for years. They may last for decades. They may last your whole life. But if you're committed to holiness, God promises and offers eternal joy. You may be experiencing, as you think about this issue, just... Uh, one variety of the issue that, that we all face in life. 
Jesus Christ, okay, I, I'm trusting in him. He promises to forgive my sins, and, and I'm going to go to heaven someday. I'm going to be with God forever. I'm going to have eternal happiness. But what's going to make me happy for the next 50 years? Uh, missionaries, you can speak to them, who go to Africa, sometimes encounter uh, something like this. We're much too sophisticated to have this mindset that they do. But So you go to uh, 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 tribal people, animistic people, and, and, and you can preach the gospel to them, and you say, Jesus is the Savior who will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Great, I want to be forgiven, I want to have eternal life. And then, uh, often, they, they also worship other gods. Well, what are you doing? Well, uh, you see, uh, uh, God, Jesus gives me eternal life, but I need some God to make sure that the crops come in. And I need some God to make sure that my wife gets pregnant, so I'm going to worship this God for this purpose, and this God for this purpose, and Jesus gives me eternal life, that's great, a sign sealed, delivered, I'm all set, but I got, it. I got details of life to take over. You know what they're looking for, is they're looking for a functional Savior. A, a Savior who's going to bridge the gap between now and eternity, and is going to make them happy between now and, and what Jesus is, is, is going to give us. I wonder... How you're facing this this temptation? Yeah, I, I know Jesus is, he forgave me and I have eternal life, but I I just want somebody to make me happy now. I want someone that I can be with right now, that I can touch physically, that that I can see, and who will answer me back audibly, and who will buy me flowers or cook me dinner or or just someone to save me now from. Being lonely. Are you looking for a functional savior, somebody to, to, to bridge, bridge that gap? What the scripture is saying is, by, I think by, by dividing these things, it's, it, it, he's, Moses, the Lord is, is telling us that there is such a thing as temporary blessing and joy. Let's, let's not diminish that. But it's not to be compared with eternal joy with what Jesus offers to be for you today and forever. Holiness helps you distinguish between those, those things. Now, here, here's a second way that this passage teaches us about holiness. Uh, when it comes to holiness, some of God's greatest gifts can be our greatest liabilities. Some of God's greatest gifts can be our, our greatest liabilities maybe flows from what we were just talking about. When it, uh, the real problem, the real problem in this passage, the source of uncleanness in this passage is actually not childbirth or babies or pregnancy. The real problem is the blood. The blood. Now remember, holiness means wholeness and post-pregnancy bleeding means uh, that you are not whole. Your body is leaking. There's not a wholeness about you. Let me think about some, a different direction here. Why did God give us blood? What is blood for? Uh, blood serves two purposes in, in the law of Moses. Number one, it sustains life. In your body, you need blood in order to have life. It sustains your life. And secondly, it provides atonement. B- blood is the source of life. It belongs inside your body. And whenever it is outside of your body, it's not good. Something's wrong with you if you see your blood. The other thing uh, that sin does is uh, it's the means of atonement. If blood is outside of the body of any animal or person, uh, not a person, but an animal, it better be in the temple. 
It, it better be the blood of a substitute animal where, where it can be shed to cover sin. Uh, think about this here. When a mother offers a sacrifice, she is celebrating the end of her bleeding with another bloody sacrifice. So let me ask you a question here. Is blood good or bad? The answer is yes. If it's inside your body or if it's on the altar, it's good. If it's outside your body, it's bad. Makes you unclean. Well, we can go on here and ask another question. Is sex good or bad? Yes. Is speech good or bad? Yes. Is technology good or bad? Yes. See, when it comes to, to holiness, some of God's greatest gifts like sex and speech and technology and blood can be our greatest liabilities. Used for their purposes, their right purposes, in their right places, they're good. Outside of their right purposes and places, they're destructive. Now, last week I talked to you about wholeness. And I asked you if, if, if you were inclined or where you're inclined in your life to give yourself a pass. Where there's inconsistency in your life, in your pursuit of holiness. I wonder if that has to do with one of God's good gifts. One of God's good gifts that is, that is twisted in your mind and in your heart. We again see here, uh, how about our fallenness, our unholiness, how it manifests itself. Is, is your money, is the money that you have something for which you are grateful, that you use to bless others, whose absence provides you with another opportunity to trust God's provision? Or is money in your life, is it something that provokes you to be greedy and covetous and worry? Is it a good gift that sours once it gets in your soul? This is how one of the ways that we dishonor God, it's one of the ways that we show our impurity, our own unsuitability to enter God's, God's presence. And the solution is the same as the solution for these unclean mothers. We need to be purified, to be cleansed. We, unlike these, these mothers, need forgiveness. There is blood that was shed, and it's not the blood of a lamb or of a pigeon, but the blood of the Lord Jesus himself. And there's cleansing and there's forgiveness for all who turn to him. This is something that Simeon and Anna knew well. When Lauren read that passage, think about what they knew about the baby Jesus. He was, what, 40 days old when, when carried into the temple. And what did Simeon and Anna see? My eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon said. People in their response to this baby, their hearts are going to be revealed. Their response to Jesus will show, will, will, will manifest itself. In their lives. Uh, your response to Jesus will uncover your heart. See, our conviction is that when, when you encounter the Lord Jesus and when, the, when you believe in him, you will encounter a God who is different than any other God he's, he's holy and one who changes uh, what you think about what the Bible describes as God's greatest gifts. He changes what you think about all the good things that he's, he's given us. Greedy people who encounter the generosity of a God who gives his son learn to let go of their money. People driven by sexual pleasure learn the joy of knowing a God whose sight is better than sex. And, and change happens. 
Its scope can hardly be, be compared, but it's a little bit like what happens on the splendid table every Saturday afternoon. The ingredients of life are, are put together to produce amazing new tastes and amazing new smells. That's the cultivation of holiness in people who recognize the blood that was shed for us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before you today and we are grateful to you for your immense kindness toward us. We're thankful that that for your uh, sacrifice that, as, as we even will talk about in days that are to come, cleanses from everything that is broken and everything that is, is painful and, and, and enables us, everything that is evil, enables us to come into the presence of, of God. How grateful we are to you. Lord, we need you to change our perspective. We need you to change our perspective on what we think makes us happy and, and what sort of saviors we think we need. Would you give us the sight that Simeon saw in recognizing that the Lord Jesus is the one who uncovers hearts and transforms them? Change us, your people, O oh Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.